0: the unfairer sex. Four women, four glasses of wine, and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot of laughing, learning, catharsis, and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Unfairer Sex podcast. Now we are delighted to have with us Patricia Hodgins. Now I've wanted to get Patricia on this podcast ever since we started because not only is she an iconic woman but also she was the first person to introduce me to feminism and she did so by inviting me to a talk at a sex shop. Now if that isn't the best first me, I don't know what can beat it. So without further ado I'm going to hand over to Patricia to introduce herself and let you guys love her as much as we do here at the Unfair Sex podcast.
2: Right, and what was I doing at a sex shop? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's probably a good way to kick it off. Um, I'm uh, 73. I say that because I'm now really in retirement, having had quite a long career doing a number of different things, but probably the most important thing in my mind is the work that I've done over the years, helping and supporting people to be effective in their communication, And particularly women and my own background to that is I'm a Canadian I've lived in London 50 years I came to hang out Europe and stayed because I fell in love with this city and I had a number of different careers over the years but the one that matters the most to me the one that means the most to me is when I was helping and supporting women who were finding themselves challenged um, confronted uh, uncertain or confused about how they could express themselves how they could Uh, take a position in the world um, even knowing what they wanted to do in the world and that's really been the frame for my work over the past 35 years.
1: I love how you have found passion and joy out of supporting women who perhaps were challenged or confused about how to express themselves now we definitely spoke about this before in this podcast about the idea of language and not necessarily having the right language in that moment to be able to explain how you're feeling and what it is that you really want or need out of that situation and it sounds like your work has enabled women to find that language to find the words that they need to be able to express themselves um, and to ask for what it is that they need to be successful in the choices that they choose to take I think another thing that you said which was of interest is that you found that women needed help navigating what positions they could take in the world now I know there's gonna be a lot of listeners who go well there's plenty of positions that women can take and naturally I think the images of a wife or a mother or a carer come to mind. But I think what we're talking about here is enabling women to to dream of more and to go after more if they so wish. It's to enable women to have the choice to choose what positions they want to take up in the world and providing them with the right tools to be able to navigate that successfully. Now I'm not going to be naive to pretend that we're not going to get any pushback or any kind of resistance against women occupying these spaces. Certainly positions where you know we've been told throughout history that it's man's work or it's masculine work or you know women shouldn't be anywhere near that because it's too dangerous for us we're absolutely going to get pushed back from that because the world hasn't caught up yet whilst we're seeing waves of feminism coming through and success from those waves of feminism we're still hitting that resistance because ultimately patriarchal systems still believe that women are the lesser sex And so I think what's really important about the work you've been doing, Patricia, and perhaps a little bit about what we're doing here on the podcast, is we are saying to women, you're not alone. This happens. It sucks. But here are some things that you can do to navigate it a little bit easier. Here's some things that you can do to put yourself in a better position. You know, and that's what we do with our sorry, what did you say moments? You know, we talk through everyday situations which are inherently sexist or misogynist and we go, right how did you react in that moment and what's a better way to react going forward that might get you the result that you're after and it could be that you came up with the best possible reaction in that moment and the people that you're talking to are just never going to change their ways but there's no harm in trying and I think it's incredibly reassuring to hear that the work that we're doing here is mirrored in the work that you've been doing for 35 years you know there are women out there who want to make a difference who want to empower other women so before we jump into feminism and your um, kind of your own experiences with the feminist movement, I'd love to hear what your, sorry, what did you say moment is?
2: Well, well, it's it's uh, a while ago, let's say at least about 25 years ago, maybe 30, that I was waiting in a bank queue for the ATM machine. So it was outside the bank and I was in a queue. We were all waiting patiently for our turn and I a conversation was going on behind me, two fellows, young guys. And one of them was talking very animatedly about somebody else, another guy. And he was clearly really pissed off about this guy. And he kept over and over saying the C word. Over and over and over again, he called this guy the C word. And I became increasingly annoyed, irritated, bothered, Probably quite angry by the time I turned around and I said to him, no, he's a prick, (laughs) not a cunt. So I'd like you to call him what he is because you're calling him a part of my body and I don't want you to do that. He's a prick. I turned around and stood in the queue and they stood quietly behind me and didn't say anything.
1: Reclaiming (laughs) was always been us. (laughs) Yes.
2: <laughs> i oh, yeah. I honestly i I just couldn't take it. I think it was the proximity and the fact that it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, and I really do mean that it's that when you think about it that a man can call the worst thing you can call a man another guy is the most intimate part of my body, a female body. What does that say about how men view women? There's a lot in that, isn't there, and so if you ever hear that, I mean. You know, women choosing call... You know, it's unfortunate the the word has been usurped into a, a term of profanity. It's unfortunate. Um, and in the case is saying, well, women can call each other what they like and they could use the C word. And I'm intentionally saying the C word. Um, and I think, okay, I'm not sure I agree with that because it's become so pejorative. As a reflection, it's like black people saying you can always say the n-word with each other and yet at the same mm-hmm. time there were those who would say no please it's inappropriate in that kind of context so I think seriously what kind of culture do we have where men now even on tv and on the radio will use that word to talk about another man I find it abhorrent absolutely abhorrent so catch guys out on it just tell them Absolutely. what they can technically say. There's a whole bunch of words they can use to describe that part of their what they really are. <laughs> <laughs> we can give them a list, hand it out to them. I'll get them laminated. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just like following things you can say. <laughs> words other than cunt yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. prick dick knob
1: (laughs) i actually remember reading about a project and i'm pretty sure it was called the gali project it was um based over in india and there was two women who were leading it and they were looking around the um how both men and women casually use profanities and abuses that are extremely gendered so even if it's men arguing what you tend to find is that they use words that are inherently feminine to criticise men. And I think it's obviously it plays into this whole idea that, you know, women and anyone who is not considered masculine, so um, homosexuals or transgender people are devalued members of society. So the best way to keep... Um, the reinforcement of patriarchy is obviously to then feed that into the language that we use and part of that is calling your mates a pussy or a motherfucker or a cunt or because it's it's slurs that are used to inherently describe women and you're putting women at the very central point of these jokes and these insults so it's just obviously I just I love the way you reacted in this moment I think it's probably one of the best reactions that you could have had and we absolutely should be holding people to account but I find it incredibly interesting that there is so much gender-based lexicon um, um, and it's been used, like, time and time again, it's been normalised uh, to a certain degree. And what you tend to find is that those living in patriarchal frameworks, frameworks that attempt to control sexuality, mobility, fertility, and the labour of women, people who live and operate and grow up in these cultures, they then too choose words to insult others which question a woman's character, or, you know, their ability to, to bear children. You know, barren women comes up a lot. You also look at their autonomy. And not always the women's autonomy. Yes, absolutely, we've spoken about pussy and cunt has already come up. But actually, you know, grow some balls. It literally implies that the man doesn't have the sexual organs. He needs to be a man. And so, so much, so many of the insults we hear today directly, uh, they just show society's attitudes towards gender. And I think it's a really interesting area and i will absolutely find and drop in a link to the study that i found of the garley project because it is, is really worth taking a read um of what the women out there are doing and looking at round expletives but yeah i mean, like patricia one of the best sorry we say moments we've had and such a
2: great reaction okay. <laughs> oh
0: that's my favorite ending done so far oh really <laughs> <Yeah>. okay
2: <laughs> take it away yeah absolutely <laughs>
1: So we heard a little bit about your career earlier on in the podcast. And what I would love for you to do now is just jump into that a little bit further and look at the interplay that feminism had with your career and also your relationship with Anne Dixon and the work that you did alongside her. Yeah,
2: I think about feminism in the context of being a baby boomer. And that means being born into a decade, the 60s, which was all about change and disruption and cultural and social change and political change. And I was part of that and a new generation looking to open up and break down boundaries and create a new and different world. It was kind of very exciting to be part of. Part of that was feminist thinking. If you think about Jermaine Greer and you think about Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, the great writers, feminist theory really emerged during the 60s into the 70s. And it caused women all over the world, but particularly, we need to say, in North America, in Europe, To pause and think and say, what kind of world is there for me? How do I want to be in the world? What is happening that prevents me from fulfilling myself or my life in the world? And that's where the theory really emerged from. The second wave really was when we wanted to think about how to put theory into practice, because women were discovering that they wanted a career, but felt that there were a lot of blocks and barriers and constraints about actually finding a career or advancing in a career that they wanted to balance their life uh, better and differently. But there seemed to be lots of push and pull and challenges and, and contradictions that they couldn't seem to be able to find a way to resolve. And that's where the second wave came in. And that's where Anne Dixon came in, in this country Anne wrote, I think a profoundly important book called a woman in your own right. she, wrote it in the eighties on the back of delivering assertiveness training programs, assertiveness training programs. And the 1980s was full of women here in the UK. And I was living here now going and off and finding a, an assertiveness training program that was delivered by women like myself who trained with Ann Dixon. And I diso- chose to train with her. I went on a, a very short program in 1985. And as a result of it changed my life and changed my career. Because in that one-day program, I discovered that I could find a way to ask for what I want, to say no, to make better choices for me, to deal with criticism, to develop my self-confidence, and on a deeper level to develop my self-esteem. So I think all of that came from that encounter with Anne, that one-day program, training to be a Redwood trainer and being part of the vanguard of women who were there delivering the programs.
0: What do you think was the main catalyst for these waves that you're speaking about?
2: You know, it's because women began to realize they were getting educated. They wanted to do something with the education. They wanted to have a career. For heaven's sakes, the generation before me, you were a housewife.
3: Yeah.
2: To... Um, Express their creativity, to do more than just fall into the same old, same old of the roles that have been defined for us for decades, for centuries. And I think that catalyst was when women were frustrated, angry, annoyed, uh, confused that they couldn't seem to find any ability to make the steps that they needed to make in order to realize those ambitions. And I think enough women began to show up uh, ready and willing and able to do it and frustrated because they were, they were feeling, I don't know how, I feel trapped.
0: Well, that was going to be my follow-up question, actually. You, you coined a great phrase there that you were at the vanguard of this feminist movement. How was the response? Did you get much support from other women, not just men, you know, other women in support of you?
2: Do you know? I'm going to say definitely from other women because I think you find your own community. You know, you look for those that are, are are joining in with you on it. And then I'm going to say there was support from organizations because this was a time when equal opportunities was very prevalent. When organizations recognized that they didn't want to lose women, they wanted to support getting more women in the organization, up the organization, in roles of. Res- of responsibility. And one of the big supporters was the civil service, because there was a remit to increase the number of women who were in managerial roles. So programs like the civil service were run year in, year out. Organizations ran these kinds of programs. So it's kind of lost in the mist of time that they were there adult education. I did many programs uh, working in adult education. So it was across the spectrum of society, really, um, that these programs were being delivered. And, you know, Anne's book sold over a million copies over the years. So the copy itself, and I have here, this is the 40th anniversary edition that she's just published this year. It's updated, but it's the same essential text the book itself is a text that gives you a a hands-on ability it's got exercises so that you can follow the program step by step with the book so I really love the way that Dixon looks at different behaviors and uh, walks through a variety of different ways that women can ask for things well what's interesting to think about a behavior is that women kind of know that you can get angry that's one way of asking for what you want You can uh, be passive and never ask for what you want, but sort of maybe kind of allude to it, but nobody listens. You can can be manipulative, so you can use sarcasm or innuendo or, you know, pout about getting what you want. Or you can choose to be clear, honest, direct, and ask for what you want in an assertive manner, respecting what you want. (laughs)
0: isn't it so much easier said than done when you're coming you've got it
2: yeah (laughs) because i'm betting i'm betting that in your head there are all these scenarios and situations and moments when you think i just couldn't get there and what's often and usually trapping you holding you Hmm. causing you to hold back is your emotions your feelings you feel afraid, you feel worried, you feel upset, you feel angry, you feel uncertain, you feel annoyed, you, you're, you, you think you might hurt them if you said something. And y- your feelings are what congest you. Mm. And the great model, uh, the gift of the model that Anne developed was to say that you can be clear about what you want, you can acknowledge that it might be difficult to ask for. It. I feel nervous asking this, but I really would like to be able to have Friday afternoons off for the next two weeks because of a particular situation at home that I want to handle. Can I please have Friday afternoons off? So what's uh, brilliant about hearing you talk is uh, the
1: very first episode we did here was uh, we asked myself, Anne-Marie, Rhiannon, and M where we were on the feminist spectrum. So where we were baby Uh feminist um, or where we were M sitting, which is just get the fuck out of my way. She's had enough. She's like, she's there. There you are. And, um, yeah, I think just having, uh, I think a lot of people also, you were talking about emotions there. I think a lot of it is also how you think other
2: people are going to view you. That's the point. And women are trapped in that yes. often. Yeah. But we we feel so concerned that we won't be seen as loving and caring and giving and supportive because we're we're suggesting we have a need too. Yes. No, I think. I think there's something to point out too, which is why Anne makes a note of this in, in the new edition, that. It's about dialogue. It's about equal dialogue. Mm. It's about coming together to have a conversation. And so much of communication these days is asynchronous. We 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 throw a comment at someone and it's in a text or it's in an email or it's in some shorthand version. It's a voice message. But we never meet them in the conversational arena. So we're bouncing back and forth with each other without settling into the heart and soul of the conversation. Does that make sense? It does. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. Is, is, that, is that one of the solutions instead of sending an email, instead of sending a, a text or something where the tone might be lost? That you, You're right. You engage with that person face to face in an actual conversation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's what the assertive this training was all about. I mean, we would role play doing phone conversations, but the essence of it was to say, how can I handle this in the arena with the person? In a relationship, not at a distance, not avoiding. One of the things I notice is how often people will not pick up phones on the first call these days.
1: I have experienced mm-hmm. just that. Um, I've worked marketing now for the past seven years. And actually, I've had a few people working within my team. And I've said to them, hey, can you just phone the printers to find out the ETA of a particular project? And they go, oh, do you mind if I email them instead? And I'm like, oh, right. Um, I mean, it's just going to be quicker to, to phone them, though. No? And it's like the hesitation to pick up the phone yeah. is, yeah, I completely agree. I've definitely yeah. seen that.
2: That's that's old fashioned. I worked for a long time in offices and that's how it worked. You phone people, you develop relationships, you cultivate it. If you had something, uh, I used to work in advertising at one point where you'd need yeah. to tell them about a delay in production and you didn't do it. You got on the phone and you mm-hmm. said, I'm so sorry. You know, you would apologize for saying this. And I've got an answer to this. Yep. That's the other thing about the assertive model says, you know, have a solution too. Yes. Absolutely. And you don't need to think about just, you know, here's the problem, I dump it in front of you. It's a relationship. Yeah. You might ask them for the solution, you know, or collaboratively work on the solution. But I think that, you know, we've lost the art and the skill of seeing each other. And, anne as you're saying, picking up the tone, picking up the nuance of the face or the body language, recognizing that if it's an introvert, that you can see that and give them a few seconds to absorb and respond, So I think there's, we've really lost the ability to do this. We can of course do it in the digital age and Anne talks about that. There's one um, section she talks about digital communication, Mm. but I think that I still apply the same principles in my digital communication, which is to be respectful and regarding and observe uh, the politeness of conversation that I think we owe people in person.
1: Yeah. And something else that Anne focuses a lot on is this idea of being really specific and clear in your communications. I know that we've been talking Absolutely. about like one-to-one conversations, whether that's digital or in person, but actually, just look, look to any political party, look to any protest, feminist movement, anti-war movements, yes. look to religion. You know, They all try and encapsulate their ideas into a really handy phrase that people can repeat, that it can be shared, and it can be understood clearly. We're talking here about Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Jin Jean Azadi which is Kurdish for Women, Life and Freedom. So it's how do you get across a concept in as few words as possible to make your communications as clear as possible? Yeah. And that
2: shouldn't matter if it's on a one-to-one basis or if we're trying to start a revolution. Absolutely. And let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. One is that when I would work with people doing role plays, getting them to, to enact the situation that they're worried about entering and don't know how to handle is to recognize whether I'd say on a scale of one to 10, whether it's a one or a two or a three level anxiety, or whether it's a nine or a 10 anxiety, because that makes a difference, doesn't it? The amount of emotional investment you have in it, or the congestion you have is is going to be different depending on those two. So it might be at a number two, it's, you know, you, you feel I can fairly easily once I've sorted it out and practiced it a bit, and this is critical, how am I feeling about it? And what is it I want to say and can I practice it? Can I phone a friend and practice it out loud, ask them to be the other person and run it through and get their feedback? Did I sound clear? Was I open? Was I straightforward? Do I express how I felt? Was, you know, did it sound that I was there, fully engaged in the conversation, being clear about what I wanted? And sometimes, you know, we lose it in the vocal tone. Or we shy away from asking what we really want. So, this practice thing is really critical in my mind.
0: I I think there's a a huge thing to be said for relying on your your network of friends and family to help you solve problems and to practice things i think it's so because then you you go into it and you're less flustered because you've already got an idea of what it might look like or how it might sound and how you sound so you can articulate yourself with confidence knowing that you've already got the words inside but yes this, this all sounds like fantastic advice for kind of any part of your life but also any gender as well so what makes this book a woman in your own right, as opposed to just a person yeah. in your own right?
2: Well, any any sex and any gender, because there's a kind of distinction between those two. Uh, it, it came out of the feminist movement and wrote it specifically because what was going on for women was what she wanted to address. And as a woman, that became her platform to say that there is a need. What we know is we live in a patriarchy. So, a lot of many, many men are invisible to the privilege that they have and hold and feel much more confident and comfortable asking for what they want, setting boundaries. They may not do it, uh, it you know, assertively. They may be doing it with aggression. They may be doing it with manipulation, even passivity. But I think that it was an intentional act on her part to say, this is about focusing on what women need. And there's still a crying need for it. You know, we are talking here as privileged white women. So let's remind ourselves that in most of the world, most of the world, there's a crying need for women to be able to uh, do the do the, the most basic in terms of of uh, expressing their their wants and their needs and setting boundaries in Afghanistan, in Somalia, uh, you know, anywhere where we know there's oppression and there's um, despair really for women. I mean, the, the movement in Iran is generated by women who said we are unprepared to be suppressed any longer. We've got education on our side and it cannot be like this anymore. So I think that, um, you know, men, for men, it's different. It's different. And for men to address it for themselves, men have done that. There have been men groups and certainly there'll be men who've written you know, literature for men to address some of the challenges and the issues that men face in their lives. Not every man wants to be the, uh, you know, the aggressive he-man in life. Far from it, you'll know those men. Mm -hmm. And they may still have the same issues about how do I ask for what I want? I think it'd be the same.
1: I also think this is really important to look at language as well, because I think for so long um, we've been told. So again, looking back at women's rights and women like, you know, now earning the Right to vote, and it's something that you know we we claim back. It's like, no, 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 it was withheld from us. So someone made that decision to to prevent people. And I think that actually what we're starting to see when you look at communicating more clearly is that your language changes. And again, we've spoken about this before in this podcast, but looking at headlines and saying, you know, this woman was raped. It's like, no, 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 a man raped this woman if it was a, a man in that situation. And I think it's actually being really specific in the terminology you're using, but then also now having the language to really understand why you're impacted the way you are or the way that you're reacting and what it is that's being done to you. And I think having that yes. language makes it an incredible, like a yeah. much more powerful conversation because you're actually able to really hone in on what it is that's, that's the problem and how you fix it.
2: And be clear-headed about it when you're doing that yeah. too. I, I think it allows for clear-headedness. And what you've just illustrated is, in case we wondered, you know, uh, we entered the world... A tabula rasa, you know, to be imprinted on, and society began to imprint us from the get-go. And those headlines uh, have impact, and and it's it's culture, it's history, it's politics, it's you name it. uh, Everything the messages came to us as females. Hmm. This is this is the world. This is how it's meant to be for you in the world, and a lot of that was not going to be something that we wanted to continue to agree to
0: you've you've mentioned the different kinds of approaches that males might have uh, how much is the feminist movement dependent on women being sort of assertive but you know assertive in the way that the book suggests and how much is it men meeting women halfway
2: well i think i'd ask you that one what do you think <laughs>
0: i <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's equally important. I think you're not going to get anywhere unless you've got someone who's willing to to fight your corner as well. So I think it's incredibly important. You, gotta,
2: you absolutely do. You, you you and you might have to educate them. Uh, am I right? Yeah. You might have to educate them because the Definitely. the reality is, as we know. If we want to be met halfway, that means halfway about uh, managing a household. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you're the younger generation looking at maybe building families and creating that in your lives. What we know what happened over the pandemic was that who took on the greatest load of domesticity? The women, they took on the teaching, they took on the nurturing, they took on the caring, they took, you know, statistically, we know it, it landed in their laps and women are still you know, this is such a major issue that we don't have the equality. So we need men on our side. You know, again, on the radio this week, they were talking about the crisis with carers, Mm. 20,000 carers leaving the profession. They prefer to work in little than be a carer. And they'd like to be a carer, but the money isn't enough. The infrastructure, the support uh, from every direction, it isn't enough. So what we need is, you know, men on our side, absolutely defending before we need to defend they need to be out there doing the same because we're talking about society we're talking mm-hmm. about families there's something in it for everybody yeah you know it it isn't that there'll be a deficit for men they'll back you know in many ways it'll it'll open up more opportunities for men for men to say i may want to take on the roles that would have been seen as primarily for women i might like to do that i'd like to get away from the sexism that traps me yeah Uh, You know, I think that if we can, and I think younger men are much more inclined. I see that in the families I know Mm. of of younger people in my own family and my nieces and nephews and the partners they have in their lives. Um, But it's still to be challenged. It's still to be challenged because it's unconscious. This is where we need to forgive ourselves and others. It's unconscious, all of this stuff, sexism, racism, you know, it all sits there. We've been inculcated with it over decades of our lives. We need to challenge it. We sometimes need to, we need to confront it in ourselves, mm-hmm. yep. for sure. And then we need to open our eyes to how it exists in the world, and we need to be able to deal with it.
1: I always find the uh, the care. Uh, industry a really interesting one because I think a lot of people who sit on the anti-feminist side use male strength as a reason why there should always be an inequality between the two uh, between the two sexes and I'd like to put it to people you know absolutely there are a handful of men who work in brickyards but actually let's put that strength into actually caring for people who who need care because I think lifting 70 kilo people day in day out that that's a good use of, of physical yeah. strength right and the reason yeah. I think men avoid doing it is because bricks don't have feelings but humans do so she's yes. much more tiring. Could be that, <laughs>
2: uh, and there'll be more. There'll be more money in lifting the bricks. Absolutely, right. Honestly, the money is just so pathetic, and it's a females in the profession. And there's more. There's more money in lifting the bricks. They'll. Yeah. They'll go. That's why they're going to Little yeah. or a supermarket of your choice. More money, less emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anne has Anne has written one book she's written teaching men to be Feminists. She and I know it's it's uh I think it's being translated into in in France it's being translated into French and it's that a man came a fella came to her who knew her through the publishing and said I'd really like to know how to be better at this help me on this and so she's she wrote a
1: book <laughs> I mean that's that's going the extra mile um that was actually my first ever feminist text that was given to me. And it became a really important part of my life because actually, again, it was, um, I think, second, no, it was like first year of university. So I was 20 years old and my housemate at the time, a girl called Sarah, she turned around to me and she said very proudly she was a feminist. And it was still at a point in my life where feminists had this, like, stigma around it. And I was like, oh, Mm. that's quite an angry term. Like, you know, I'm not so sure about this. And then uh, my friend Victoria, your... uh, your niece um she then goes actually my my aunts invited us along to something do you want to come along And I was like, no idea what it was um but we ended up at a sex shop and it was a talk <laughs> being delivered by ann dixon um and they were handing out these books uh teaching men to be feminist. And it was the first text i've got given and i think for me it was such a pivotal moment because not only were my friends talking about feminism but then also the generation above them were also talking about feminism and it was like this isn't just a This isn't something that's going to go away. You know, this is something that really matters and it matters and it's been, there's momentum here and it just really threw me for the first time. It's like, I might want to start taking this more seriously because it's not only my generation who are talking about this, but there's generations of women who have done the groundwork for us. So like, you know, let's, let's engage with them and see where their ideas
2: are. And, and. Thinking of that, uh, one, one thing struck me, have you talked with your own mothers about it? And who knows their opinion or their view? But I think often this cross-generational conversations need to happen so that we can actually say, well, this is what we covered and this is what it was like and this is what we hope to achieve and this is where it worked and where, you know, I wish there was more. Mm-hmm. I think it's the critical mass is about, um, you, you need to get volume. Like for instance, the more that women are in, uh, in significant roles in the wider arena, in the public arena, uh, in politics. Uh, you know, The more that we see women in, in higher levels in managerial roles, the more that we see women in uh, the cultural arena, uh, w- the more that we see ourselves, mm-hmm. the more that we know that this is a place where we can belong. Yes. So that numbers matters and, and that goes for in the world, we need to keep pushing forward, getting those numbers up there and, and maintaining them. And the movements like the Me Too movement, Yep. that uh you know get, put a label on something that had been going on forever i mean uh, it amused me the idea that um i don't know i don't know a woman who hasn't at some point in time had a in some way shape or form uh, a sexual act against them that you know that they didn't agree with and they weren't party to and i certainly had it happen to me and i thought you know did I ever speak about it? Not much. I don't think I even referred it to it over the years. Mm-hmm. And it struck me. I just did this suppression of that because it was like, oh, well, it happened in the office. Never mind. Put it to one side. Uh, just, you know, keep on going. It was ridiculous that I let that happen.
1: Yeah. But at the time, it was the thing to do, wasn't it? That doesn't make it mm-hmm. right. But it was that's what the society was telling you. Like you didn't hear your mum talking about it you never heard your friends talking about it so you just swept under the carpet and went about your yeah. day i think i think yeah. it's
0: still i think it's still the thing like except just the thing to do yeah i think if you look yeah. at the appalling conviction rates if you look at the yes. even just yeah. the charges that come for sexual assault you know yeah. we had a, a, a did you say it, a couple of episodes ago where something happened in the workplace and nothing came of it because the the mail just said it didn't happen yeah so yeah, so it's still just not swept under the rug, I suppose, but it's just not coming to fruition. Nothing comes of it. Mm-hmm.
1: No, but I think what you're talking mm-hmm. about is is actively discouraged. Like, women, like, in those instances, women are coming forward and they're getting turned away by police officers or by the Attorney General by saying, you know, we're not going to take this case forward. Or it's three years later and the woman is so traumatised by the whole experience, yes. hasn't been able to go see a therapist, yeah. you know, has been, yeah. like, paranoid about her phone, what's coming from her phone, or, like, does she... Yeah clean off all the evidence that she you know she didn't want to clean off because the the day after she had a shower because she felt dirty do you know mm-hmm. what I mean like all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and I think not only are women they feel they should give it to themselves but also I think in some situations they're actively discouraged from coming forward mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know when they do they're going they're given every reason to say are you sure you want to keep going with this or should we just pretend this never happened I, I, and I'm betting from their own families too from their own families and friends very possibly I am saying probably the person that they're accusing I imagine their friends and
2: family are probably giving them pressure as well
3: yeah 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 yeah
2: so uh, do we know that work needs still be to be done? Yes, absolutely, but it's heartening to see that um it's being taken up and um you know fresh young <laughs> minds and, <laughs> and 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 the women in Iran, for instance, I have two Iranian friends here who were in their sixties, and they were off protesting yesterday mm. so um y- you know, just to see that that momentum is there is really heartening. So I get a similar feeling when I look at Iran
1: and the uh, revolution that's happening over there at the moment because whilst it is predominantly about respecting women and bodily autonomy and women's choices to wear or not wear a hijab, we're not just watching women in the streets, we're watching men stand by their sides and support them. We're seeing teenagers and university students who are literally putting their lives on the line. In fact, everyone who is protesting over and around at the moment is putting their lives on the line. Amnesty International reported on the 6th of October that there have been 66 people, including children, who have been unlawfully killed by Iranian security forces. They've also injured hundreds of others after firing live ammunition, metal pellets and tear gas at protesters, bystanders and worshippers during a violent crackdown um, after Friday prayers on the 1st of September. This isn't just one generation. This is a series of generations coming together yes. to overthrow a regime yeah. that shows or has shown nothing but an utter disregard for the sanctity of human life. And where is the accountability? We are literally watching a regime murder their own people, and international powers are just standing by and watching. And then we have our UK foreign secretary telling the LGBT community that they should be respectful at the Qatar World Cup. So when our government does speak up, it's to say to those being oppressed to continue suffering in silence. It's such a weird like, world we're living in at the moment. And I, I know this has got everything to do with money and power. Um, but again, you know, another example, Afghanistan, we're like, we've just marked the one year since women have been removed from education. And again, we're as a nation, we're sitting here mm-hmm. and we're watching. You know, you can't even find this in the headlines anymore. You really have to search out for this kind of information to, to keep on top of what's actually
2: going on in the world. And if you look at that Afghanistan one, the important thing is that the seeds were sown 30 plus years ago when education started. So they have an educated female force there. And yes. You can't forget that, you know, it's not a blank sheet of paper, which is what they're thinking, because, you know, they'll find a way, they'll find a way. And that's the momentum thing to just, you know, trust in the momentum, trust in the iterative process that, uh, you know, if you keep going, uh, institutional changes will take place. Um, It's the same with Iran, isn't it? There's there's generations who remember what it was like before. Yeah. And they're still living My friends at 60, they were fully free. When they lived in Iran, they left because of what happened. Um, But, you know, just holding on to that and recognizing that it's better. And I think that's where social media Mm -hmm. and where online can make a big difference in the world, can't it? The voices are heard and, and multiplied and resonate in a much stronger way now. And I think that's something that's really terrific.
1: And actually talking about social media when we and we're looking at allyship, um, from what I'm aware, Iran have actually really tries to close down the channels yes. in social media. So they're not allowing yeah. those with like residents of Iran to actually use yeah. those channels. So it's even more important that those who do have information are able to use their platforms to to keep yeah. it in the public eye, you know, to make sure that news outlets are aware of this because you turn on our light on the BBC and you get you're not hearing about this. And actually it's one of the biggest revolutions that we're seeing at the moment.
2: That's what my friends actually, she said to me with, with chagrin, she saw me last week and she said, why aren't the BBC, you know, what's going on here? Yep. Of course, it's, it's further down in the news now. It's sort of, you know, that's what happens. It ratchets down depending on, on, on what happens.
1: Yeah. yeah. Another movement I'd love to talk about is the Freedom Trash Can. And this was, uh, it took place in New Jersey. And uh, there was a article the BBC did in 2018 and they were interviewing Robin Morgan, who was one of the organisers, And she had this brilliant um uh brilliant line in in the article and she said we were young radicals just discovering feminism because we were tired of making coffee but not policy um yeah and this uh this freedom trash can movement this is what made it um made the burning bras link with feminism so apparently one Uh woman symbolically threw away like they took her bra off and threw it into the trash can but actually yes. that trash can was full of like many other symbolic things yes 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 and um, but it was, the yeah, bra. it was the bra that got identified
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's kind of has a trope all of its own now doesn't it the, the, the bra thing what the heck and it got you know picked up and they, it's been running for years hasn't it yeah the angry it's been bra for...
1: burning feminists. Yeah, yeah
0: yeah
2: um so what, but, so what was Oh, sorry. So, what was the
0: idea? The trash can movement was to take all the all the icons of fem of uh, sort of um, suppression, probably, uh, know, yeah, yeah, and, and put them in a trash can and set fire yeah. to it, and yes. you just like, having to snap one of the bra. And that has
2: that, yeah. Has that but I'll tell the... you something. The thing about the bras in those days is they were awful things. I mean, they were not horribly designed, and they didn't fit the female form. Yeah. And on top of just having bras. Our generation, my generation still wore girdles, corsets. Wow. Because there were no nylons. Nylons hadn't come in in the the form we know. You had garter belts and, and, you know, and stockings and you wore little corsets uh, because bodies, women's bodies were constrained. Yeah. That didn't get freed up until the 60s. What happened in the 60s? We just, we got rid of the bras. That's (laughs) the point. Yeah. but we didn't burn them they were just horrible so remember it wasn't just the 60s you know I was dressed like a mini version of my mother in 1962
3: yeah
2: uh, with a little you know crinoline dress and little gloves and a little hat and within a year in 1963 I had an incredibly short mini skirt on and my hair was all down and you know kind of teased up and I was wearing white lipstick that happened in the space of about a year and I wow. saw the Beatles you know um <laughs> I saw them didn't hear them because the whole audience was girls screaming Uh, but anyway and I think that the point is that fashion utterly changed Mary Quant and then uh, you know flower power and everything was floating and loose and diaphanous and you didn't you weren't constrained by you know something underneath and you just you just you know let it hang loose let it hang free that's what the whole time was about so you know you ditched the underwear that was constraining you too but that you know that became a, a a kind of as I say a trope of of its own the, the burning bra and it got picked up and you know continues to to run and run and run but we did ditch our bras, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but also you and I have had conversations off um off mic about lycra and the fact that women's oh, fashion lycra. um yeah evolved so much more than men's right please talk to me about lycra what was the well lycra um, no issue I was like? riffing
2: on the issue of lycra as you know in the seventies. <laughs> particularly when fashion changed and it was all lovely and loose and flowing and free form and psychedelic and et cetera, there was a bit of elastic. So you, you revealed quite a lot, but it wasn't re- revelatory. Does that make sense? It wasn't skin tight. It didn't, yeah. you know, kind of suck you in like an elastic band. And I, I, I said teasingly to you, Lycra has a lot to answer for because I observed how, <laughs> younger and you know a it arrived of course it's a great fabric however you know uh, an eight-year-old a nine-year-old a ten-year-old an 11-year-old with a body kind of you know contained in lycra outfits is very sexualizing that was my point about it you know I just felt gosh we're revealing a heck of a lot now with this and what does that say it's a kind of almost by the way, wear it if you choose to. It's not about the wearing of it. It's the messaging. It's what happens. And I you know, just noted that we live in a very sexualized society now. For women, the whole arena of selfies and curating yourself and cosmetic surgery and nothing is good enough and the perfect eyebrows and, uh, you know, everything to perfection. And I think that it's it's much worse, you know. I realized a selfies didn't exist when I was young, but we hardly have photos of ourselves because we didn't have cameras. Yeah, and photos were expensive. And I think I probably have a dozen photos of me from the age of fifteen to thirty. Wow, I mean, I think because I've, I've we a... just we just didn't take photos. We weren't, you know, we wanted to look good. Of course, we did. You know, we cared about how we looked. We wanted to be modern. We did whatever was the, you know, the fashion of the times. But there wasn't that self-obsessiveness now that is, I think, damaging, damaging Mm. to women.
1: So here's a question. Um, Obviously, if you look through history of men's clothing, obviously, there was quite frivolous parts of, you know, if you look at the courts of Henry VIII, there's men with massive wigs on and frills everywhere. Fantastic it was it was marvelous. Um but if you actually look through through much of history actually men men generally wore suits, right? Or there was like different versions of suits or so it would be like jeans in the top and it was always like a top and a bottom kind of situation going on. Um when we look at women's fashion, women's fashion has changed considerably over the years. Obviously yeah. like, you know, again general basis of, of dresses and skirts, but for a long time it was women making their own clothes. So, is it was it women were inspired to be like to sexualize their own clothes or was it when um clothing became much more commercialized that we started seeing kind of the sexualizing
2: sexualization of clothes coming in well, I don't know. I think it's been going on for a while, isn't it? You know, I think the Cardassians probably started it a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that you know, I, I in some ways the the fabric arrived. Women have always wanted to look great, yeah, and they've always wanted to sometimes look sexy and some like sometimes look demure and sometimes look sophisticated. I think that fashion it, is our field. Uh, if you want to think about men's fashion, go see the masculinity show that's on at the V right now. I have because it gives a different story, because what you've just alluded to is that I've always felt it was unfortunate that men were, you know, their fashion was isolated down to to suits. Yeah. Um, When there'd been such an amazing, uh, you know, kind of cornucopia of male's fashion that was brocade and lace and velvets and gold glitter and, and, and wigs and makeup, and they were never less masculine as a result. So in a way, what we've, poor old men, They lost that. Now, the flower power era brought back men's ability to wear colorful shirts and wear silk and wear, you know, and all of that, which was wonderful. And I think that we need to bring back more of it and more and more men. And this leads to the gender fluidity, Mm -hmm. which I would fully endorse and say, look, you know, women were always allowed in a way in, in the last century to wear men's clothes increasingly because it's not a threat to men yeah but you see, yeah, for man to wear female clothes, men will get you know that can be threatening to other men if that makes sense. you know women wearing men's clothes doesn't really threaten them. It can be kind of you know interesting and and provocative almost
0: what so looked, what kind of a what kind of a threat to other men if a man wears female clothing? What it female well you clothing? tell me Is it
2: not- who, would, who would end up saying who would say that in our culture? That it's a threat to other men.
0: So for me, it's because it
1: blurs the lines between feminine and masculine, right? And if you are trying to uphold a patriarchal system that devalues members of society such as women, based exclusively on their sexuality and their gender, well then a male choosing to dress in feminine attire or to present themselves as more feminine, well then that starts to undermine the patriarchal framework that relies
2: entirely on these very neat boxes of what a man means and what being a woman means. And also, I think it's threatening about masculinity, uh, you know, for those who choose to want to be transgender or or, or transsec and choose, I, I they want to choose to live life in a different gender and how that can be threatened, attacked. I mean, you know, uh, for me, I think it still is a, an area that men find discomforting and uncomfortable. You know, you can have pantomime stuff. That's kind of different. It can be joked about and mocked about, but it's actually... Uh, more challenging when it's someone who says, "I want to choose a different way of living my life."
0: Uh, okay, I thought I've always considered that the the people who might subscribe to a sort of anti LGBT uh, ideals would be the kind of people who would also be thinking less gender equality generally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps
0: I misunderstood your
2: point. Yeah, because it's about power and those in power want to hold it. And if you've got absolute power, you don't want to see it dribbling away at the edges or being diluted. And we Mm. still live in a world where power explicitly and implicitly is, is profound. Who's got the power and how? I mean, reminding ourselves we too have power in the sense of we are white women. So there's a power that goes with that. And we're educated white women. So it's acknowledging that the power hierarchy includes us and you know, being mindful of how unconsciously we operate from power positions. And, but we're just ultimately ending up looking up at the I say looking up at the in the hierarchy, the ladder of power up at men who often could hold it with, with ease in a way which would feel tough for me to hold it. Does that make sense? Women, you know, it's like it feels harder because you're challenged you're being challenged in a in a different way
1: absolutely yeah and also if we're at the top people are looking up our skirts you know men haven't always had that issue because <laughs> yeah. they're wearing yeah, trousers exactly oh, I yeah <laughs> i actually have a question and it's kind of been bugging me for a while um we did a black history month book club at work which was fabulous and uh, the text uh-huh. they chose was um a book called we should all be feminists by Chimanda gozi adichie yeah, I think yeah, so. from, um, yeah, it's really great, there's also there's a TED talk on YouTube, so if you're not a reader, I would um, highly recommend the TED talk, but um, someone actually asked, you know, what is this an appropriate text for work? And I think the reason, again, the same way that I probably reacted the way I did when I was 20, is because I think the word feminism has femi in it, that a lot of people feel it's a uh, it's an ideology that only benefits women, or it's an ideology for women. And I would like to ask, like, do you think that feminism would have had um, less resistance had it had a different name? So if, if femme was nowhere near of it, like was, was nowhere near... Um, the the
2: term. if if we'd if we'd accommodated the others and their fragility in, in taking <laughs> on this you know this idea uh, yeah no I, I think that my immediate response would be to say it wouldn't have mattered I think it wouldn't have mattered because it's it's what was sitting behind that yeah. you know it's uh, the movement and what it represented and the voices speaking voices who at the time didn't care if the other side got pissed off or annoyed or angry at what they were saying. And just said it. I, I, you know, I think sometimes that's, that's the difficulty is that um, you're going to be met with resistance. So it really wouldn't matter. And, you know, trying to figure out what would the other like in order that you could um, take on board something of what they're saying. You know, you can run that through a, any ism, you know, uh, it wouldn't matter which ism you took. You'd, you'd You'd find yourself, how can I say this in a way that you'll listen to me? That's tough. Yeah. And um, now we're back to Anne That's different if you're saying, <laughs> how can I personally say something? Yes. Yeah. How yeah. can I personally say it in a way that you'll listen to me? But but neutralizing the language into something that will be feel more accommodating
3: mm.
2: it made me think that goes on everywhere, doesn't it? Marketing terms and advertising terms and political terms. How can we frame this in a way which people will find more attractive? That's the art of politics these days, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I I just, it was really interesting uh, reading Shamanda and actually a post I did about a year ago and I found myself going, I am a feminist. I don't hate men and I don't burn my bras. They're expensive. And uh, Shemanda, in the first chapter of hers, she goes, I'm a feminist, but I'm not an angry feminist, but I'm also a, a feminist from Nigeria. She felt the need to uh have loads of um asterisks is that was the right thing have loads of footnotes about what it meant to caveats, her to be a feminist caveats, but yeah yeah, yeah. Cap- yeah exactly that and it's just really interesting that um again we kind of go i'm a feminist and then the first thing we go oh that's just for women you're like no 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 and you feel that you're having to get over that hurdle before you can even engage them on a proper conversation and now right. I've, I've gone and got to the point yeah. where if you're yeah, not yeah, willing yeah, yeah. to engage with me on this and you're just going to pick holes
2: you know what i'm i'm okay i'm going to go grab a cup of tea and have a chat with someone yeah. else um, yeah yeah in a way, now that's, that's something that's important in Anne's book. And it's really critical to bring this word into the arena choice. Choice. Where am I going to choose to put my voice in the arena? Who yes. am I going to choose to do it with? If I find that I'm, you know, somewhere where maybe I'm going to choose to leave that conversation. Maybe I'm going to choose to exit from the dialogue with that person until I believe that they're going to be more prepared to listen. And where will I put my energies that I think are going to be more well received, more acknowledged? So, you know, the word choice is, is, is the book is, is, you know, riddled with the word choice because it's really about saying the more that I can find my feet, stand firmly in the place of who I am and operate assertively, the more that I will begin to clearly exercise uh, myself in the arena of choice which is always going to be there hmm. life is going to always you are women of a certain age you know um, partnership maybe marriage relationships maybe children hmm. how many children um, parents uh, in-laws friends um, you know all the different a, a career how far how much Yeah. Uh, how important where do I need to negotiate with my partner because mine may feel and seem more important to put time and energy into in the relationship than theirs right now you know all these it's like it's um life is complex anyway but rather than have the choices made for you it's about being fully present in the choices for yourself even maybe making choices that you feel in the end well that's sad to make that choice or gosh i feel uh yeah, I, just, I feel, you know, it's unfortunate that that, but that's the right choice for now, mm. the right choice for now. Not every choice is like, oh, yippee, I made this perfect choice. Mm. It might be one that's full of a bit of dilemma. Yeah. But still, it's stronger, and you'll feel stronger, and I know it for myself when you can say, but I know I made the choice for me.
0: What, what would you describe is the difference between sort of the feminist movement and just the notion of equality? Because I've met some females who've said to me, and, I, and to me, that doesn't make any sense because I think for me, what feminism is is just trying to try trying to get all both, all genders, whatever you are, equal with each other. So you have equal choice, as you say, um, with the with the acknowledgement that you need to lift the female gender up a little bit more. Um, but do you see a difference between feminism and the pursuit of equality?
2: No, I think they're deeply embedded with each other. I mean, they're in the warp and weft. Of uh, whether it's it, it, you know it's, it's addressing any issue of uh, lack of equality. That could be whatever group we're talking about, whether it's old age people or whether it's disability, um, you know whether it's it's people of color. Mm. Um, you know you know you, you have different definitions, but for me, if we're spe- specifically thinking about for women, and that's what it is there for, why not? Um, then it's it's like the same cloth, you know. Equal opportunity is embedded within the notion of feminism. Equal opportunity is an an action, isn't it? How can we ensure that there is this thing called equal opportunity here in the organization, in our family, you know, in the school? How do we ensure that that's there? We might have to have a look at it because, unconsciously, it may not be there some group may not be get back to all the programs run by the civil services because they were losing incredibly talented women on a regular basis. This is the eighties. They were losing them and they wanted to find equal opportunities about saying, how do we give them the support through a program to build their confidence, their self-esteem, their belief that they can do it and the techniques and the skills that will help them so that when they go back to their job, They will see themselves as a candidate, a rightful candidate for the next opportunity. Now, that's the point about saying, you know, you're you're not trying to have more of an opportunity. You're going to have an equal opportunity. And that always means that there may be those who are unused to being in the arena of power who need to be given some help. That's like if you had two children and one was less confident about reading, Mm. you might As an equal opportunity gesture give them a bit of extra reading (laughs) you know because you know that it would help them to have an equal place it's as simple as that does that make sense you know it's like rather than trying to, to divide it and you know kind of multiply it into different i just like to see it all as in the pretty much the same arena yeah
1: i also feel that we should counter it with um training on rejection because i think there's been a lot of people who are just used to hearing the words yes or, you know, getting the promotions at, you know, the next annual review. And I think actually, um, if we're going to be raising the equal opportunities, I think then another group of people probably need to learn to handle rejection a bit better. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) And therefore, the people who are making the decisions need to be on an assertiveness training program to know how to say that to somebody, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And they need need to know how to sort out the systems and processes within the organization. Yep. Because, you know, it's only going to work if systems and processes complement what you're trying to do. If they don't, that's back to the issue of women not coming forward around rape rape issues, because the systems and processes don't support them. So why would you go there? Yeah, and we're seeing it at the moment as well with the decline in women choosing
1: to have children. Yeah. Because yeah, why, yeah, why would she- we raise cho- well, children in a society that doesn't support
2: motherhood? that doesn't yeah. support women going back into work, yeah, yeah, yeah. That you know, puts us into yeah.
1: poverty because we can't earn the money yeah. and yeah. our husbands... And we know to- that's yeah. an
2: emerging theme in China where they had the one-child family and that led to an, uh, hundreds of thousands of excess of males. Um, and uh, what are they going to do with that? <laughs> and uh, now what they've said is you can have more than one child and we positively want you to because, we, you know, we're going to run out of young people. The women don't want to have the kids. Yeah. Don't want to have it because their own lives. They've said, "I have to look after the grandparents." Still, yep. I'm not going to do that. It's just me. I want my career. It's tough. It's going to be, you know, challenging economically. Why? Why would I want to have children? Wow. Yep.
1: But also in America, you know, again, like the cost of having a child just to birth the child in hospital can be as yes. much as a down payment on a house. So also, yeah. it's not just as you said. It's it's not. Uh, just the yeah. knock-on effect to your whole life and the fact if you're already yeah. looking after and yeah. supporting and caring for other generations yes. in your family, but yes. the actual initial cost of having
2: a child and then the cost At- of raising your child. And here, the the, the uh, programme on carers, they said they talked about parents and paying for uh, childcare and the prohibitive expense of it way over other countries in Europe. I mean, the, the developed ones, essentially. £138 a week, I think it was, for something... Um, at one point, you know, one of the one of the quotes and that parents just can't do it. They can't do it. They can't pay the seven or eight or nine or 10,000 pounds just to have one child in part-time care. So therefore they compromise on, you know, what are we going to do yep. in terms of family? And yet other countries have much more generous because they understand that they lose a big contributor to society if they lose that that woman. And the child loses out if it doesn't get the socialization that goes with the education. Yep. So it's it's losses in all kinds of ways, which takes you back to government and you wonder you know, what goes on. This
1: is, I think that's the thing that's always me. It feels really reductive. Is not only you taking 50% of your population out of the workforce, I know it's not that dramatic, but if you're penalizing one particular sex, then that's what you're going to get. And then also, again, you're also penalizing the next generation of workers. So actually for an economy who's trying to do well in a
2: first world country, it feels very counterintuitive to not look after Uh, families. And and the madness is that the carers have to stop being a carer because they have to have carers for their children. You know, the carers are looking, you know, this is carers in the broadest sense, you know. So, so they need carers for their children because they're in, they're, they're in a care home, you know. And so the equation just falls apart completely. So when we think about where does the work need to be done, yeah. I think of myself as privileged because I was able for myself in my own right to have a good career, to progress in it, to um, financially, you know, create a good, strong foundation for myself, to in, enjoy a rich life. Lucky me. I've had tremendous amount of um, benefits mm. out of what I would call this, the movement that I became part of, but there's still so many for whom, you know, nothing has happened. Nothing. Did you ever have any pushback from people
1: in your circle, so if from family or friends, when you, start, when you got into that movement, when you started claiming or um, describing yourself as a feminist?
2: No, you know what? Genuinely not. I don't think it's something you go around saying... Um, much does that make sense i don't think you know amongst those who know you and and the the group that you you are involved with we all were so it didn't matter we didn't need to say absolutely if it ever came up are you a feminist i would say yes of course yes of course and I, i i probably said it in a way which said if you want to talk about it fine but if you don't want to that's okay you know i didn't feel i needed to defend it in any way so um no i've always felt really really comfortable about saying it okay and
1: did you ever get criticized for the life that you led so obviously single moved
2: to England I think not criticized that wouldn't be the case but always you know when you aren't the norm you're always people are curious you know so you never got married and it's like no didn't that one just didn't happen um you never had children you know so I mean that there's still much social pressure on that and and by the way, it's absolutely fine to be curious about other people, about how they've lived their lives. You know, its I, I don't think it's about uh, uh, never ask me if I've been married. Does that make sense? Because we're curious about each other.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but I think there was in some ways it was a deficit. You see, it was behind it was a sense of deficit, except for older women who say, Good on you! <laughs> You're the lucky one. <laughs> That's what my older women friends say. You're lucky you got away. You know you got away from it. Um, but it wasn't by design. Any of that. It's just how uh, probably something about who I am and how I live my life and what I did and 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 the things that that became important to me. But it wasn't. Um... And then of course I think the pejorative. I, I say this is. It's like George Clooney. Um, you know, not, not getting married and why wasn't he getting married? And, and he could never be, you know, allowed to be comfortable in his singlehood until he got married. Finally he got married, thank God, you know. Um, so I think that we still want to, to kind of put people into formulas in a way. There'll yeah. be more and more of me though, because one in five women are not going to get married, not have children. Relationships, w- w- wait and see, you know, that the statistics, gosh, I mean, London is full of single houses of single single dwellers in single houses probably with a renter or two but you know single units now less but that's because you can be financially you know probably able to live a life like that
1: so I've read uh that if you're a woman who is university educated you're more likely to divorce your husband um, I think it's that kind of idea that. Oh, I like that stat. <laughs> yeah, um, because you're you're not only educated in terms of you know understanding the world a bit better. You probably yes. met a few more people. You know that there's and
2: it's probable that you've worked and you probably have some of your own money or you can, can actually, have yeah. access to money. It's, it's down to finances. Me and many people will stay together. Yes. You know we live at a time where we're living longer than we ever have before. Uh, it's it's a surprise possibly that we can stay in relationships for the de- the tenure of a whole life considering you, you know it used to be that you'd be dead by 50 or 55 but now when you're 90 or 95 it's a it's a different story.
0: Completely was, different uh, story. I was watching a particularly cynical individual. I can't remember who it was. He was talking about um exactly what we're what we're discussing now that women are becoming educated and they're becoming interested in careers and interested in other things and they're able to make a living for themselves and choices for themselves and they're no longer really wanting to get married and have children and this person was saying well of course not especially if you're looking for someone who can complete your life and you are well educated and you have a good job and you're happy and you have great friends and you have choices what on earth you know you need to bring something pretty special as a as a counterpart as a male to this female to be someone who she's going to to consider a mate and it's becoming more and more challenging because yes you know, we're happy well <laughs> not you know we we are happier you know what, what on earth what on earth could complete it something pretty special yeah. and
2: that doesn't describe I, I, and you know you're just uh, touching on something which I found interesting um, was that men entering relationships a lot of their social arena is or becomes organized by the woman like men will often lose or become you know distant from their male friends over time and then you bring the family in and and it the, the woman kind of runs the kind of family social network so women are quite whole in that sense and for men it, it it's like i think that, that genuinely the women who are my age the men would flounder the men would flounder if it, you know and and, and the women become less and less satisfied because the men Statistically, they don't want to go and join the club in the community or the arts uh, program or, you know, they're much less capable in that sense. And again, that's where men need to cultivate and develop their own abilities around that. Another one for women to take on,
1: (laughs) you know, take on. So my husband rides motorbikes, and every now and then he'll go on tour with a group of guys. And on this instance, he went away with a group of middle-aged men. Now, when they arrived at the chalet, they discovered all the local pubs were closed. Now, usually at this point, you'd go into the kitchen, you'd open the covers, and you see what you can make. But what this group did is they kind of stared blankly at each other and started to panic about what to do. They took Joe to go, well, why don't we just cook up a spag bowl? And then the group were like, well we don't know how to make a spag You know how to do this. And Joe's like, oh yeah, it's easy. We just go grab the ingredients. And well done, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> right? And when Joe came home, he's, he kind of talked to me through what would happen. And he goes, oh, I just can't believe that no one knew how to cook anything or like, you know, something as basic as spaghetti bolognese. And I said, well, sweetie, like, I can believe this. Like, you went away with a, a bunch of middle-aged men who were from a generation where the women did the cooking. So where would they have picked up these skills if they weren't actively trying to learn them, right? The point is proof. Yes. Yes. So it's just just... Blows my mind that we still have a generation of men, and unfortunately, there are still some within my generation, my and Marie's generation, who don't know these basic life skills. Because it's all that is here. Like we shouldn't be handing out medals for people being able to cook for themselves. And if we feel the need to do that, then we really need to sit down and think about what on earth we are teaching our children. If they get to their forties and fifties and are still relying on other people for their basic needs.
2: Right. So I'm gonna suggest more than suggest. I'm gonna um, demand of women that sometimes. You end up feeling only I could do it the best. Only I am the one who's going to be good at this, mm. like the cooking, because, you know, and maybe I'll feel guilty if I don't do it. So, never mind, I'll step in and do it. Or the childcare. I've watched how men feel uncertain around their children because their partner does it so much better, yeah. knows it and understands it better. And the women, will sometimes not allow the partner to just do basic spag ball, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to just, uh, the kids are dirty when they come back. Who cares? Yep. Um, you know, I mean, I think men can feel uncertain. I ask your fellows about this. It's like, you know, and, and I we have a WhatsApp on this street, and there's a lot of families. Firstly, who is the majority on the WhatsApp? Because it's a social street wide whatsapp and it's a big long street it's the women
0: the women
2: who are putting out the need for something the women mm-hmm. you know the men there's a couple of men who come in with like a joke or something I it's unf- I should It's unfair to say but you know it's it's or maybe a political comment you know and it's a street whatsapp but mm-hmm. I'd love to see and I think that men feel uncertain around this yep. at times and I love the ones who like joe and you know a basic spag ball for heaven's sakes yeah i refuse as well so uh, we both got the
1: similar sized families and joe looks after all of his family's birthdays christmases like engagements wonderful yep because it's like and again you see it so much of the mental toll of not only having to balance your diary uh, but then also the stress of having to make sure that you're seeing your partner's family so that everyone feels loved and looked after and it's just like i said to joe like you do yours, I'll do mine, we'll, you know, we'll meet in the well, middle. Well,
2: what's, what, what's great about that partnership is you've got to watch out for the partnership where they say, I don't know how to, or you're better at that, or, or uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm never going to do it like you. Uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a warning sign. That's a warning sign to saying, what am I in here? Yeah. Put 40 years on that. You've got somebody who's like old and they can't do it. Yeah. And then you're wondering what's going on here. So uh, I would really say, And I'm thinking already of of a number of my nephews and some of them are really good at this. So I I know I'm very hopeful around it, but it requires a good woman who's assertive and clear to to give the indicators that allow for the equality to emerge. You know, Mm -hmm. that's probably where you've got your power base around that. Does that make sense? If it's going to be home, children, et cetera, you know, the natural power base, whether you like it or not. So offer some support. Over there, and the reverse is: how can I help and support you about freeing up when you need time for your career?
3: Mm.
2: You know, do we readjust the family so that you're, you know, that you go for that over the next three or four years? And yeah, yeah, I think
1: you raised some really good points. And one of the things that always kind of makes me smile is that when people go, "Great, well, if you want equality, then women should be paying fifty percent of the bills," and I'm like, "Well, yeah, if that works for your household." But if you're earning 100 grand and your wife is earning 50 grand, well, then expecting her to pay 50%, all that's doing is compromising her financial stability. So if you actually genuinely loved her and you wanted to support her, then what you would look to is equity and splitting the bills in a way that actually represents what you both earn. When I consider a more equal relationship i'm not looking for the woman to be wearing the trousers as a fuck you to patriarchy i'm not looking for the man to be in a penny doing all the cooking that's not what equal relationship is what an equal relationship is is that both parties to that relationship have had equal opportunity or at least choice to choose whether or not they want to assume the roles and responsibilities that society has told them belong to their sex and because society has been so strict about what those little boxes are, like, you do find that when the other partner chooses to go, actually, I want to go try that out. I want to learn how to cook. I want to be the one who takes my kids to the doctors or to the school. Or, you know, I want to manage the bills this month because I I haven't ever learned how to do that. And what you can find is that the other party who isn't used to doing that particular role becomes very apologetic or feels like they're tiptoeing or encroaching. Yeah. And actually what I found in my situation is when Joe started to learn how to cook... He would apologize every time he put dinner down in front of us. There was nothing wrong with the food. He may have done it in a different way or he may prep food in a different way, but there was nothing wrong with that. But he still felt the need to apologize to me because in his eyes, I was the one with the skill. And if he wasn't doing it the way I was going to do it, then he was doing it wrong. And it took a little while for Joe to gain confidence in cooking. But, you know, he then headed off to the Alps with some middle-aged men and he cooked them all a spag bowl. So uh, (laughs) I think he has well and truly
2: learned that skill. So this is a perfect example. Of what sexism is. Sexism harms both parties, because first of all, the woman is relegated to the roles that are meant to be the, you know, the roles within her sex. She's meant to be, you know, the cook, you know, the, the nurture, the care, the whatever. And the man is meant to be out there, you know, kind of in the most primitive sense, hunting, you know, coming back and and and, and working hard. And so both parties can be tentative or unsure as they enter into the arena of the other. Mm -hmm. And with love and care and support and dialogue and good conversation, we can begin to say, this is what the fluidity thing that's emerging now is saying. Those who are saying, I want to be a they them are saying, I don't want to be constrained by these models, which, which are there big time. It's going to be very, they'll never really go away. You know, they're going to be present. So let's work with them, let's acknowledge them and recognize that, you know, sexism isn't just about women, it's about both parties. Racism isn't just about blacks, it's about both sides. It's, you know, we've got to understand it's, we're in it together Mm -hmm. in a society. And um, the more that we can engage in the dialogue across the the fluidity of the boundaries, or the structures of the boundaries, or the solidified boundaries, you know, the more that it's going to be better for everybody yeah. and we'll still come back to being who we are in that yeah
1: I uh, I don't know about you Anne-Marie but I I find it quite interesting that we um so obviously this podcast generally has four women hosts
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um, we've been told like you know do you not think it'd be beneficial to have a man kind of on your podcast is that going to be able to speak to men easier like will you know will you get your message across easier and my answer to that is always like, you know, there like every other channel is a male channel, right? Every other film is a male point of view. Every article you read and all the literature I have in my bookshelf, you know, it's, it's been predominantly male for, for many, many years. And so actually, I think um, reaching out and actually listening to women and engaging with women and whether that's your mothers or your sisters or your friends, um, people in your workplace, wherever you, wherever you can find women, go have a chat with them. And I know you mentioned earlier Radio Four. Is there any other areas or any other uh, media channels that you go to to, to listen to women's voices? And- oh, well,
2: you know, I most exclusively listen to Radio Four. But you know that Jane Garvey and Fee Glover have been recruited over to um, uh, Times Radio. I did not. That's exciting. They've been they, their podcast, which has been a huge, huge hit for the last what two, three years. It's gone. They're over there. They've got a they've got a show in the middle of the afternoon. And they, they, like so many, the best of the best for BBC are being seduced by Times Radio. And it is a live radio show. So unlike the podcast, which was, you know, was live, but then recorded and it, it is a live, I think, call in radio program that they're doing. I haven't yet listened. It only started about two, three weeks ago.
0: Oh, how is it? How are the first few episodes?
2: I have, I I need to listen in. I haven't, but it will be, yes, it will be following on from what they did, which is they're just crackingly wonderful. (laughs) The two of them, they're, they're, they're humorous fun, but serious feminists. Um, and, uh, I mean by that, that, you know, they'll take on the topic and they, they live it out in their own lives. And, you know, I I admire them greatly for that. So I think, I, I think that more than anything, um, but anything that to do, yes, I should I should be listening to them. I should be drawn to another station to listen to them. Wow. Anything that you're listening to, Marie? I think, th- and an answer to your thing. You saw me heading, uh, you know, saying, "Don't you can have men as guests." I think you're going to have a men male guests. We've had one, <laughs> of-, of course, of yeah. course, of course. I-, I I think be be what you are for who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a a rich and fertile field to plow, so and and to and, and to reap the rewards of. You know, there's um, there's so many elements and aspects and dimensions that you can explore and um, see where it goes. I mean, it it could, you know, permute in certain ways, but I think right now just keep it what it is and maybe bring male guests in as and when.
0: Yeah. I, when it comes to those kinds of comments, I always get slightly frustrated because they're inevitably from the kind of people who, who we're not not necessarily trying to attract, but aren't, aren't really going to be listening to us seriously. What we're trying to achieve is the female perspective and the things yes. that frustrate us during our everyday lives. Yeah. And I just think we, we have some incredible people on. And yes, we've had a male, but I would be saying this even if we hadn't had a man on. Yep. that we have a huge amount of intellectual diversity. And to suggest that there isn't sufficient diversity because we haven't had a man on, well, then I think they're overlooking the kinds yeah. of people that yeah. we've had on and the opinions yeah. that we've had on. Yeah,
2: yeah. and also, yeah. in other words, it's playing into the thing about there's some deficit here. Yeah. You know, until we yeah. hear the male voice somehow. Yeah. And if you reverse it, I'm just thinking in the in the reverse, it's it, male boards, and we need a woman. It, it it had to be almost imposed because the point was that the you know the. The, the unilateral power that existed around only one one voice is is relevant here needed to be addressed, but that's a, that's about the equal opportunities point, you know.
0: I mean, just that same person listen to all male panels and write in saying, "Where's the female? You need to get a female yeah. perspective." Pro- yeah. probably not. Probably not. So no. you know, there are plenty of opportunities to get the male point of
1: view. Yeah, and I also think it, it's
2: incredibly misogynist to assume that yeah. uh, you're not going to yeah. be able to learn from women. Well, I, 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 anecdotally, I, I won't name the school, but I worked at a prestigious business school. Uh, and this is back 1999, 2000. And they create their own clubs at the school. And uh, one of the women's students asked to speak to me because she knew that I did actually work on, on um, women's programs and uh, women's issues. And she said, "I we have this thing. We created the club and we're getting some of the male students being really aggressive with us about why won't we let men in the club? And she said, this is 1999. And uh, she said, what should we do? And I said, make it really simple. Just say, this is a club for us. And if you would like to create a club, please do go off and create your own club for men. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's the choice. If you engage in some kind of conversation, you know you'll go nowhere because they're they're trying to bait you, Mm -hmm. put it simply. Well, I can say that 20 years later, That's possibly the most powerful club at that school. Wow. Really? And if not, pretty close to the top because they've expanded and grown and they have men who will be um, brought in as a, a kind of bridging factor. You know, they're not running the club. The women are firmly, clearly in control. They get fabulous guests um they've created their own training platforms I could go on and on about what they've done and I just look about it and I just said to her just don't don't worry about it don't engage in it tell them to go if they want to very politely if you feel you need a club well make do one of your own of course all the clubs are mostly yours but absolutely (laughs) Haven't you noticed that you've got all the clubs? All the others. <laughs> this is one for us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, what is it, Madeleine Albright, who said this? Hell is a there's a hell for a place for women who don't support other women, and I think that's
3: yeah.
2: really important, including things like, as we watch politicians, and that's what's happening right now. Um, the challenge of seeing women in in senior political roles, and then not doing it well. I'm talking about Liz Truss here. Mm is that it's important that we hold firm around that doesn't mean that women can't do these roles. Yep. You know, because it's very tempting and easy mm-hmm. that that'll be a narrative there. Yeah.
1: But it's also, I think, the um, the Liz trusting as well is, I saw a lot of media attention about it as well, being like, just because there's a woman in power doesn't mean this is a good step for feminism. And I know there's been a couple of people who have been put forward into the new cabinet who, again, have got very anti-feminist views, you know, who have voted against um, abortion rights, who have voted against women's health care, and yet they're the ones taking up positions of health minister and, you know, looking after um, female rights. And it's just, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a step forward for feminism. And again, that's the problem, I think. There's just too much association with feminism being women
2: and then not. Yeah. It's feminism is yeah. a movement for the equality between yeah. genders yeah. and our like... core principle is is equality in every way. And that doesn't mean that every woman is going to be well, all women don't have the same uh beliefs. Yes. Around that's very complex. There I say someone could say I'm a feminist and I don't believe in abortion. That's a challenging one. Yep. Yeah. But, this that is, but again, I think it goes back to choice, isn't it? It's like you personally yes. can have
1: the choice not to have yeah. an abortion. However, yeah. you shouldn't be making laws that prevent other women from having abortions if that's their choice. Yeah, and yeah. for me, that's where the
2: difference yeah. is. And that, that's a, a that's a wonderful way of unpicking what what gets very confusing mm. right there, because we're not always going to see eye to eye, and that's where women need to be back to Anne's book, back about back to the point about dialogue and conversation. If we're just slamming each other with points of view and not allowing for the the uh, importance of listening, taking on board, holding your position, but allowing the other to offer a point of view that might cause you to just flex it or change it or you know, um, you know, shift it in some way, while still staying true to your position. Yeah. You know, I think that's. Uh, that can be very challenging. And sometimes the exhaustion means I'm just going to throw a strop or you know, <laughs> run and hide or, or cry. Yeah. <laughs> That's reminding me of my, my brother, John. I think you've met John, my brother. I have. Uh, it, talking about, you know, that uh, it's unfair when he gets stopped by a cock, cop for uh, a speeding, that he gets a ticket. And he says, I see these women who tell me that they just cried and they got away with it. And I think, yeah, absolutely. That is unfair. But, it's
1: but we live like how many other unfair things that we have to deal with a smile on our face right let us have the like let us have the speeding ticket
0: <laughs> are, you, are you saying that the hundreds of years of suppression that we occasionally get off yeah a parking ticket yeah a speeding. Ticket. And, and you know that,
2: I'm with Ellie yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good weep might just strategically come in you know, we are but human. We're going to float all around different behaviours. That It's in our, our kind of makeup because we learn them. Absolutely. Uh, however, my however is to say more often, more consistently for yourself and for others, it would be a good idea, I think. And it re- would reap greater rewards to be clear, open, honest, direct and equal in the way that we communicate. <laughs> and I think that is
1: a fabulous point to uh, finish this conversation Patricia, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. What fun. It's been great. (laughs) such good fun. Yeah, Um, let's do it again.
0: Absolutely, let's do it again.
1: (laughs) Um, I think we've had this now for most of our guests. I feel this is just going to be a repeat now every six months. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you. so much. I hope you
1: enjoy the rest of your evening. And uh, if you've been listening along, um, thank you. And we look forward to welcoming you back to another episode in the future. We've been the of Sex. Uh, It's been Patricia Hodgins, Anne-Marie, and myself, Eloisa Tovey. And hopefully we'll have uh, Rhiannon and M back on the behind the mics as soon as we can see you later the unfair sex is not sponsored so if you enjoyed our show please show your support by liking subscribing and sharing on all your favorite social media platforms we are on twitter the unfair sex we are also on instagram the unfair sex podcast you can find us on facebook and if you so desire you can email us at the unfair sex at gmail.com look forward to hearing from you or catching you on a future episode How much change do you think there's been with feminism? Has it been a positive uh, movement for women
2: or is there more that still needs to be done? Well, it's both of those. It's been a positive. From my perspective, I believe strongly that there has been change. It's been iterative over time. There's no question that that there's been big improvements and big advancements for women. But I chose to ask a couple of friends of mine about this, both women in their 70s like me, and one of them said, absolutely reiterated what I said for sure. There's been change. She sees it. She sees it for herself. She sees it for younger generations of women. And the other woman surprised me. She said, absolutely not. I don't really believe there's been much significant change at all. What has it done for working women, working class women? What has it done for those that are socially at the lower end of society? What has it done for those who don't have the opportunities for education and advancement? For those that really are in lives that are much less privileged than than frankly mine and yours and um, where we have had the opportunities placed in front of them and it just struck me as something to really take on board not just in other parts of the world but here in our own society are we helping and supporting other women those who really still need tremendous amount to live a decent life